from 1 Peter, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, friends. Happy Mother's Day. Truth be told, Mother's Day is not a religious holiday, officially, um, but only a fool would forget about it and preach without mentioning mothers. I know that because I've done it. (laughs) Only once. So here goes. When I was a kid, my mom used to tell me, this is a great quote. I'm not sure if she made it up or not, but here goes. My mom used to say, you will learn more about a person in the bad times than in the good. You will learn more about the bad from about a person. You will learn more about a person in the bad times than in the good. In other words, kind of unpack that a little bit, to unpack her words, when people react to stress and suffering, it shows you what's really going on inside, doesn't it? Their core, their guts. You know, the scriptures refer to this as the cardia, the heart. So when you hear the word heart in scripture, it doesn't mean your emotions. It means what actually makes you you, the stuff that you're made of. You know what a person's made of, not when things are great, but when things are suffering, when people are suffering. And mom was right. It's easy to be joyful, at least it is for me, easy to be joyful when things are good, right? Yeah. When Penn State wins, which isn't often. Uh, but, But it's true, when things really get tough, you begin to see what other people are made of. In fact, when things get tough, you begin to see what you're made of with God as your strength. Amen? St. Peter was not a mother. (laughs) St. Peter had a mother, and maybe his mother taught him this very same advice that he shares with us today, that suffering is what builds character. And what suffering does is it shows us how to move forward. Here's two things that St. Peter's mom talked to him about. I'm making that up. Here's my two points. (laughs) What is the goal? This may sound like a funny question, but it's a real one. What is the goal of suffering? What is the goal of suffering, and how does suffering change the world for good? What is the goal for suffering, and how does that suffering change the world for good? So first thing, what is the goal of suffering? It sounds like a trick question. It's not, actually, and I'll show you why. St. Peter writes this very letter to, the, to other Christians in the world that are being persecuted for their own faith. There's no destination involved. It's not to the Corinthians or the Ephesians or the Galatians. This is a, a Catholic epistle, an epistle general. It's written for all churches at all times and in all places, including our own. And so Paul is writing to Christians who are suffering for their faith, who are suffering for believing in Jesus, and his point is that suffering is not meaningless, but actually has a purpose and a goal, and that God can and God will use suffering to make Christians stronger. Now, Peter is no armchair theologian, no lettered professor from uh, Oxford writing an op-ed for the New York Times, for example. Peter is actually a guy who suffers himself for his faith. And in fact, if you know the story, later on, not immediately after this epistle, but later on down the road, when it really hits the fan for Peter, Peter is arrested and he is crucified for his faith upside down. The Romans are very good at this kind of thing. 
St. Peter dies for his faith, crucified on a cross upside down. He said he did not feel worthy to be crucified like his Lord. It's incredible. The point I want you to see here is Peter does not just talk the talk, right? He walks the walk like any good pastor should. And he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, this is, I mean, look at this again, verse 14, it's astounding. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Not you might, you could be. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, for doing the right thing, he says, you will be blessed. He continues, have no fear then, don't sweat it, nor be troubled, don't worry. He says, don't, have, don't fear them, don't be troubled, don't be worried, don't be stressed, don't be scared, don't sweat it, he says. But in your hearts, listen, this is the key to the whole thing, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Let's stop there. What does that mean? <laughs> it's an important point. What does it mean? See, before we can suffer and get a goal, a result out of it, we have to have a clear sense that Jesus is holy. What does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. Uh, but by negative, and then I'll tell you the positive part. I'll give you an example. I think it's a safe bet to say that we are in the midst of a culture war. Truth be told, we've always, the church, been in the midst of a culture war. Yeah, the details change. The circumstances vary. The big hot thing now is gender. But it's been all different things throughout human history. Drag queens being used to recruit for the Navy. Yeah, that's a new wrinkle, a new twist. But the point is, the culture and the church have always been at odds. And there's a reason for it. This is nothing new, and it shouldn't surprise us in the very least. There's a reason why we are under attack, and it's simple. If you are a secular atheist, then this world is all there is. Think about it. A secular atheist is someone who believes in the world and doesn't believe in God. If you are a secular atheist, this world and achieving what you want in this world on your terms is all there is. It's the whole gig. There is nothing holy because there is nothing outside of you as a secular atheist. Nothing to aspire to outside of this world. And so if this world really is all there is, as a secular atheist, you will, you will use any means necessary to do your will with full and complete assurance that what you're doing is right. Don't take my word for it. I'm not making this up. Another guy who I quote frequently, who I'm both uh, interested in and disgusted by, interesting com combination, a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. You've heard of him before. Friedrich Nietzsche, famous 19th century German philosopher, the famous uh, God is dead guy. You know him, right? I showed you that bumper sticker before that I had. It says, the bumper sticker that people have given me, it says, God is dead, Nietzsche. And underneath it says, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> but Frederick Nietzsche said this very thing. This is nothing new. If you get rid of God, if there's no God, there's no right and wrong. He called it beyond good and evil. But it basically means if there's no God, there's no right and wrong, and there is nothing to stop you from doing what you do. Might makes right. If you can do it, you do it. You do everything you can in your power to achieve your ends if there's nothing outside of you. 
And that's why Peter says, no, hang on. Don't worry and don't be fearful and don't be afraid. Instead, he says, honor Jesus. Set Jesus apart, listen, as holy. That's the key. In other words, something has to take the place that everything else falls under. Either it's yourself or it's the Lord. And if you set Jesus apart from this world on his throne in heaven, if he is the standard, then he is the one you, you appeal to in all questions. So here's the, here's the point one I want to talk about. What is the goal of suffering? What is the goal of suffering? Peter says, well, to know that, you have to set apart Christ as holy. He's got to be the lens through which everything else is viewed. If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and he has been, historically it's irrefutable, and when he returns, he tells us the dead shall be resurrected like he was, the world shall be set to rights, that those who are faithful and believe in him, who have trusted in him as their Savior will be saved, and those who have said thanks but no thanks will spend eternity without him as they wished. But the point is, you see, this is the thing I want you to see. There's two different things going on here. The world says focus on the now. The church says, no, no, you focus on Jesus as holy. The Christian focus, friends, is not on this world of now, but the world that will be. And that is why, stay with me, the goal of suffering is one word, hope. It doesn't mean what you think. Hope is a, the, the, the point of suffering is hope. What does that mean? Well, the word hope we hear in English as something I want to happen but might not, right? I hope I win the lottery, or I hope my kids remember Mother's Day, or I hope Rodriguez reigns it in within 25 minutes this morning. I got plans at the club. You get the idea, right? Most of us hear as hope as something which we would like to happen but might not. My daughter Katie just took the GREs. I hope Katie does really well, right? That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a Greek, Greek word, elpis. And it doesn't mean something I want to happen. Listen to this. This is super important. It means something I know will happen, but, but hasn't, hasn't yet. yet. In other words, Christian, Christian hope is not just dreamy, woo-woo stuff. stuff. It's, it's not, not just, man, man I really, you know, you know little orphan Annie, Annie, the sun will come out tomorrow, tomorrow right? right? No, no, man, that's, that's, that's fairy tale. Christian hope is in a confident expectation that Christ will return because he says he would. And either he tells the truth or he lies. If he tells the truth, we believe him, that Christ will return. That is the Christian hope. That is what our entire focus is on, that when Christ returns, the dead shall be raised, and Jesus wins, and so will we. And that is why, friends, suffering teaches us to hope in Jesus. It resets our framework, our matrix, from here to Christ. Let me give you an example, kind of make this a little more earthy, if you will. It's pretty earthy. Um, as you may know, uh, two weeks ago, Kathy and I were on a 10-day trip to Israel, which was amazing. And yes, we are working on a slideshow for the fall. We'll show it to you. Um, but anyway, we did lots of different stuff, saw all sorts of amazing things. But something struck me that I didn't see coming, um, but the Lord did, I guess. Uh, it was a place called Caesarea. Ever heard of it? I mean, it's in Scripture. Caesarea, it's on the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, Caesarea is a place where Jonah was swallowed by the whale, by the fish. You know the story? And spit out in Nineveh. 
It's, it's also, also a place where Herod, King Herod, Herod, Herod built a lavish home for himself. It was actually super, I'll bet the thing was amazing to see. It was actually built into the rock on the beaches, and the dude had a swimming pool built with mosaic floors under the water of the ocean. It was amazing. It's beautiful. But there's something else which really, really hit me to the core. If you look over from Herod's, Herod's house, his, his uh, temple to himself, uh, you look over here, and over here was a, uh, it's called the Hippodrome. It's basically a great big uh, uh, racetrack where they would race chariots around. You've seen Ben-Hur or, or the Gladiator, you know what I'm talking about. And the Romans loved this kind of stuff. They would have these great big spectacles. They have chariot races going around these big circles. And off to the right here are these stadiums still there. These stadiums still there with these rock or stone seats. And, and these, these people would bring these chariots out, race them around. And these chariots were huge. They had a, a wireframe depiction of one of them. And they would run racing around, and they'd be cheering them like a Penn State game against Notre Dame, right? Woo, bring it! They're going around, they're going around, and then halftime hits. And then they call up Beyonce. No, they didn't call up Beyonce. It gets it's a lot worse than Beyonce. What they would do is in the middle of the, in the, middle of the, uh, the ring, there was a track. Maybe, I don't know, maybe about this wide. I know because I walked it. About this wide. Marked with stones along the center of the racing uh, track. And at halftime, they would bring people out, Christians mostly. They would bring them out and line them up uh, naked, beaten. They would, oh, I don't know, the Romans were good at this sort of thing. Behead them, flog them, execute them. Flogged them, to the cheers of the crowd, right? Publicly flogged, beaten, executed in all sorts of created ways to keep the people from trying to follow these crazy followers of the way. All to the cheers of the crowd. And there's this path that went along it. And I decided to go down there. And I walked it. And I will never forget this. I walked along this path by myself. I, had a, I have a short video of it, but and I'll show it to you someday. But as I walked along it, as I'm walking along this path where these, the stadium's still there, the track is still there, Herod's house is still here. As I'm walking along, I can, I can picture in my mind's eye the cheers, the, the, the scowls of the crowd. And you can, you can feel the heat. I could feel the heat on me. It was hot that day. You, you can, can hear, hear the jeers of the crowd. You can, you can smell the sweat. You can taste the blood in your mouth. And it ran through my mind as I'm walking along this pathway in Caesarea that that is where my brothers and sisters in Christ died. In that very spot. They suffered for what they knew was right. They suffered because they hoped in Jesus. I mean, think about it. They could have recanted a piece of cake. Lots of them did. They could have burned a pinch of incense to the altar and called it to the emperor and called it a day, but they didn't do it. You know why? Because they had hope. Because they had a confident expectation that Jesus would return, and their hope was not in this world, but in the world to come. They had, listen, a confident expectation that when Christ returned, he would save them, and they lived like it. And here's the question that went through my mind as I'm walking and I'm praying, and I was really moved emotionally, as you might imagine. What would I do? What would you do? This is the thing that raced through my mind. Would I have the courage to be a martyr? What would you do? By God's grace, yes. 
But see, to suffer well, to be a person of character, you have to set your eyes on Jesus as holy. He's got to be the starting place, focusing not on the things of this world, but on Jesus on his throne and the confident expectation, the hope that when Christ returns, he will set the world to right. See, friends, the purpose of suffering is hope. It teaches us hope to live confidently in expectation that Christ works things out in the end. And then the second point I want to look at briefly is how does this expectation of hope, how does it change the world? How does it change you? How does it change the world? Well, Peter says this. Always be ready. Listen to this closely, right? Because he's not talking to, he's talking to you and he's talking to me. He says, always be ready. Always be ready. Always be ready to offer a testimony for the hope that is in you. I want you to think about that for a second. Always be ready to offer a testimony for the hope that is in you. I want you to, I want you to think about a time, I mean, I want you to really do this. <laughs> I want you to think about a time in your own life when you were suffering. It could be, it could be anything at all. Death of a loved one, somebody you love is sick, maybe you lose your job, maybe you forgot Mother's Day, something bad, right? Fell out of school, whatever it might be. Sometime when you were suffering in your past, think about it. You got it? Where are you now? Can you look back in your mind's eye with the gift of hindsight and wisdom and look back and see Jesus working his hand in your life even in the midst of that suffering? You can see it if you look. You can't see it at the time. When you're in the middle of suffering, your eyes are so focused on the immediate, you can't see it then. But as you get along and the anxiety wanes, you'll begin to see God working his mighty work in the midst of suffering. It's where he does his best work, frankly. You can't see it when you're in it, but with time and prayer and hindsight, you can look back on that time right now. Do it and see how Jesus has brought you where you are even now. You can see it, can't you? So here's the question that Paul, Peter puts before you. Are you ready to give a testimony for the hope that's in you? What's your story? How has God changed you? We had a funeral yesterday for a woman named Martha Lawrence. May she rest in peace. She died suddenly last Saturday, actually. And uh, we were getting ready to bring the family in, and I was going through the bulletin with them, and there's the hymn, which you all know, Amazing Grace. You all know it? Okay, of course you do. The, the hymn Amazing Grace. And just offhand, I said to the family, we're in the education building, I said, hey, do you guys know where this hymn, hymn came from? And they said, no, we don't. They knew it, of course, but they didn't know where it came from. Do you know the story? Well, it's written by a guy. Talk about a, talk about a person who's been changed. Amazing Grace was written by a guy named John Newton. John Newton was an 18th century English slave trader, a slaver. He was a pretty rotten guy by anyone's standards. He was a rotten guy by his own standards, frankly. I mean, when you're carting people across the Atlantic for money, that's a pretty despicable way to make a living. I think we can all agree. But then John Newton met Jesus. He was converted. He left the slave trade. He was actually ordained an Anglican priest. And then he wrote the hymns of this song, Amazing Grace. And I'm going to read them to you. Now that you know the backstory, listen to his story. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. His story of being a wretched man saved by grace is still true 200 years later. And it's still true because it tells the story of every human heart. I once was blind, but now I see. So here's 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 some homework for you. And it's not just homework for next week. This is homework for the rest of your life. Every day, I want you to think about this. What's your story? What's your testimony? How has Jesus changed you? If you were in a court of law and Jesus was on the stand, you were on the stand to give a testimony and Christ is on trial, what would you say? That's what that means, testimony. What would you say if Jesus was on trial? And can you share that story of how God has changed you? Now, the people around you might tell you you're a hater or you're crazy. They might roll their eyes and say, you're a holy roller. Okay, that might happen. But if you don't tell them their story, they'll never hear it. And the amazing thing is most of us want to share our faith with others. We want them to have the same hope that we do, right? I hope so. If not, come talk to me. We want to share our faith. We're not sure how to do it. We can't quote scripture. We're afraid we're going to make a mistake. We're afraid we're going to offend somebody. Here's how you do it. Tell your story. Tell your story. You got to know your story and then tell it. And the beauty of it is, it's biblical, the beauty of it is they can't tell you that you're wrong. They might not agree with you. They might not have the same circumstances you did, but they can't tell you that you're wrong. But the thing is, you've got to be ready. You've got to know your story. If you don't know it, neither will they. So here's my homework for you for the rest of your life. Think about your story, how God has and is saving you. Think about it. Pray about it. Know it. Talk about it with your friends. Talk over your own life with your friends, your spouse, your kids. Kick it around. Wrestle with it. Write it down. But know your story. Always be prepared, Peter says, to offer a testimony for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. See, friends, you can't be ready to tell your story if you don't know your story. And you won't tell your story if you haven't thought about it. But the bottom line is this, that suffering in all of its forms produces hope in us. It changes our view from here to Christ being holy. And it gives us our story to increase our own faith, to be reminded when we're suffering of times past and how God bailed us out. That's true. But it's also an opportunity, our story, to encourage others, to sit with them and to say, John, when I was sick, Mary, when I was hurting, this is what the Lord did for me, let me tell you. And watch how your story will change the lives of those around you. Watch how the hope that you have becomes infectious. Watch how Jesus uses you to bring others to him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you can use even suffering for our good. You can use even suffering to build in us hope. Help us to learn from our struggles, to see your hand in our lives, to put our name on it, to think through it, to know our story and be ready and willing to share it. Help others to see our hope in Jesus in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.